Kia everybody, what's up? It is Rebet. Welcome to Rebet Live. Another another show, another heavy hitter, another one of the boys. Ross Carl, how are you, mate? You're good, mate. I don't know about a heavy hitter. <laughs> yeah, shit, yeah, mate. Relatively yeah. lightweight. Hey, it's uh, all things are relative. You're a bro. What's up? How you doing? Uh, you look like you've got a bit of space there. Lounges yeah, good. Yeah. Got, this is the studio? Yeah, this is uh, the studio. Yeah, the, the baby's just gone to bed. You can probably see a nappy in the background there, actually. Um, <laughs> The baby's gone to bed, the missus has gone to bed to catch up on some sleep, and uh, I'm left with a uh, very quiet house. Yeah, so we've got to be efficient with our time, because I know how it is. How, how old's Bubs now? Bubs is six months, uh, two days ago, um, and he's yeah. just started crawling. Um, so he started crawling this week, and it's elevated, like everything right. is elevated. It gets aggressive, like you can't, you can't contain, because obviously Isla's two and Avery's one now, and it's just... As soon as they get to that movement, it's like every two to three seconds, like, all right, without, without, it's like hunt, seek, destroy, or save. Yeah, totally. <laughs> and and the most dangerous stuff, like, you know, the toys aren't good enough. It's the electrical cable fireplace. <laughs> it's the skybox, you know, like, uh, favorite toy at the moment is the sky remote. Um, you can make him do anything with the sky remote. You just throw it in yeah. front of him and he'll chase you around the room. Yeah, and they, they, they get quick too. Like when I was, I think the same age, I... While mum was changing my diaper, I rolled into a fireplace like that. While she turned away to get the diaper, I rolled into the fire. <laughs> I just like, rolled into <laughs> man, how are you? So, so you're you're obviously in AK. Um, uh, you're in the media landscape at the moment. You're doing a bunch of the rugby stuff. Maybe let's start here. How has this at a macro affected sport? <laughs> uh, I mean, there's let's probably start just not many quick. Yeah, just a simple Everything question. has changed. Everything has changed. Like, there probably aren't that many industries quite like sport because sport is entertainment-based and based on live. You know, the most important thing about sport is live. If you don't have live sport, you it's not worth it. You know, you need the crowds, you need the atmosphere, you need all the electricity that goes through, and you need actual sport being played. So probably as much as any industry out there, at least any entertainment industry, sport has been just completely turned on its head. And... In some cases, in some sports, it's revealed major issues with um, their administration and, and the way that they'd set themselves up financially. Um, and in other sports, you know, they're being really clever and they're finding ways to get by and stream and get content out there while they wait to get back on the field. Yeah, the the pivots of creativity that has forced the... So I've got a couple of things. I'm gonna, I'll... I'll, I'll start here first. I have been impressed with seeing how the pop-up studios have flattened the quality of what the expectations were for life. Like I remember when they used to first bring in Skype calls and they'd put, they have to put the big Skype logo on top of it. So you knew that it wasn't a TV um, satellite truck that was there. Be like, Oh, okay, cool, cool. Yeah, I'll, I'll deal with it. And then it's got to the point where now almost you don't need to put anything because everyone knows that everyone has got either a phone or a webcam or it's some connection somewhere. And so it's almost like flattened down. Maybe it's, it's organically lowered our expectation of production value for the world that we're now living in, right? What do you think that's... Yeah, I think there's two sides to that. One that's been coming, I think, for a little while um, now because, you know, there's been a lot of getting a hold of people on Skype. Remember back in the day, like on the news, when when footage was shot by like an AMCAM, someone like a Handycam or whatever, you'd see in the corner... Yeah, and right. cam because because it's like you don't want your cameraman to look that bad you know well, what i mean because it's so shaky it was, bra- it was branding of production value like that was the um 
it, it was almost like a not a badge of honor but it was distanced like an unwanted stepchild if it wasn't their control and what's yeah. interesting is then if you look at the most powerful things that have come since it's been everything that's been user driven from the phone itself so the power flipped right Totally, totally. And I think that's one of the interesting things about it. In one way, the phone quality has meant that, you know, for instance, this behind me, as long as you've got good light, um, you can make it look pretty good, you know. Um, it, in, in some cases, some news channels are still shooting in HD, I mean, in SD. So this is higher definition, you know. Um, but in, in other cases, look, if you have bad light and you've got someone who doesn't know how to frame up a shot or any of those kind of things, then suddenly... You know, the expectation does get lowered. Um, but I think what we're finding out from that is it's not necessarily about what the picture looks like. It's about what the person's saying. It's about what you're feeling about what the person's saying. So it doesn't matter if it's a bit grainy. It doesn't matter if there's a lag on the line. If you're moved by what that person's saying or doing, that's the only important thing about content, as long as you can make out through the fuzz that that's them. Yeah, true. The second part is... In the states I've been watching, and you know, usually it'll be you know a bit of first take or a bit of this and that, and I've just been really interested to see how people in sports journalism, because there is no sport after week five, have really uh, they don't have much to say anymore. They just <laughs> like it's it's kind of like let's talk about LeBron versus Jordan. Let's talk about. Uh, and Tom Brady let's it's just like the same thing so the, but then but then weirdly enough they can only do then replays of anything else so there's this huge void this absolutely massive void of of space like this can't you can't you could not keep all of these shows going for another year but if there's if there's no sport how do you think the actual banter is or what do you think the, the what are the pressures of the sports media landscape right now in terms of daily comms and, and output I, oh, the, the biggest pressure is habitual, you know, because people have so many options out there for entertainment. You know, things like Netflix had already made a massive mark on the landscape as far as your choice that you have. You know, it's no longer there's only rugby at 7.30 on a Saturday night. There's anything you want. Um, so th within the media landscape, uh, people like us at Sky, we have to find a way to keep you coming to us because when COVID's over, we need you to keep on coming and people are creatures of habit. Um, and we then sat down and had conversations about how we could do that, you know, what the holes have been in the market, what people really want. And what we kind of came to the conclusion was, is that for, for as much as New Zealand loves rugby, um, maybe New Zealanders don't know their players as well as they probably should. They've never really been let fully inside. And one of the keys to long-term success in rugby is, I think, getting to know the people who play it. You know, if you understand what, let's say, Aaron Smith or Bowden Barrett or Rico Ioane is all about, if you understand their personal lives and, and who's involved and whether they've got a dog and all that kind of stuff, you're more likely to buy into them as a character, them as a brand, and therefore them as a rugby player, and then therefore tune into rugby when rugby comes back. Mm. So we've got a unique opportunity now to take that and elevate these guys so people can understand who they truly are, not just through media interviews and things that you see in the newspapers and on television news, actually inside who they are. We can be in their homes because that's the only place they are for weeks and weeks and weeks. So um, Sky obviously is you know, a partner of New Zealand Rugby um, as the, the broadcast host. 
um, I mean, and there is now no, <laughs> and and now now New Zealand Rugby is a part owner of Sky. So it was a matter of getting together with Sky, together with the Players Association, and Sky and New Zealand Rugby, the three parties, getting together and coming up with a plan about how we can create unique, interesting content and sell rugby. And we came up with this show, Isolation Nation. Um, and what we do is we have access to um, twice a week, we have a bunch of content come in from a bunch of different players. So we'll have one from each Super Rugby franchise, uh, then you know the, the Women's Sevens team, uh, the Black Ferns, the All Black Sevens. So we've got those eight key teams right now. Um, you know, and obviously the All Blacks are involved in the Super Rugby team, so we can get them from there. Um, and we get them and we talk to them about what their lives are like. Get them to show us what they're doing. You know, do you have kids? What are you doing with your kids? Um, what are you doing around the house? Um, are you about to have a baby? What, what is your life about? What are you interested in? Do you collect basketball cards? You know, do you, what, what do you do? And so they've let us in. Um, and it's been really good. And in fact, I think it's been a complete game changer because in the future, I think the standard through this having to innovate and change the way we do things will change people's expectations of how they get to know their sportsmen. Because we've now got a camera inside Aaron Smith's house and he is showing us what life is like for him, what his loves are, what his family's like, what his house is like. People love to see what people's houses are like. You know, it's like a big long version of MTV Cribs. Um, you know, and, and, you know, do you have a flash car? Do you drive a Harley Davidson? You know, what do you do? What are you about? Um, and so we've been, we've had that chance. So when rugby comes back, people now know their stars better. And hopefully when rugby comes back, we can continue to sell these stars in the same way. Um, in a way that the American stars, I think, sell themselves really well. You know, LeBron does his little Instagram lives and his bits and bobs and gets you, he shows you his life. And, mm -hmm. and that's been the game changer, especially within the rugby circles for us. And I think going forward, you could see that this COVID thing will change the way that you see your sportsmen, how you access your sportsmen. And it gives, like you said, the people behind the camera a touch of power. You know, Aaron Smith can sell himself through his own words, not through the words of a journalist, not through the words of, you know, uh, whoever it may be. This is Aaron Smith according to Aaron Smith. And, and that's a space in the landscape that needed to be filled. But the, to that point, right, like essentially it's a strategy of almost like it's a reality show for social, but, but the difference it feels is the All Blacks as a brand has always been very guarded as a brand mm. in terms of curation, right? And so the headspace around this moment right here is, is quite a huge decision for them to almost humanize and kind of um, behind the curtain and, and, and for a particular brand which is never shown behind the curtain, right? Like the most I'm sure anyone's ever seen of the All Blacks is the flipping Amazon doco where they got to oh. see, see that whole thing, right? Like that was, that was massive. It was like, holy shit, this is what it looks like there. This is what, what happens. How do you think this now going straight behind the story? This is brand building for rugby. What's the biggest challenge that rugby has in comparison to say the other sports in New Zealand right now? That's but it's basketball, soccer, cricket, golf, everything. Choice, choice is rugby's biggest um, challenge. You know, for years rugby was it. You know, um, rugby was your choice. It was if you went to school, you played rugby or you played football. But um, rugby was, you know, the, the thing that was hallowed. If you're the first to see, that was the big thing. In the summer, you played cricket, you played tennis. These days, you play anything you like. You can play basketball, mm -hmm. you can be a skateboarder, you can ride your bike, you know, you can be a, a professional gamer, you know, you can play poker on the internet. You can do anything you want. So rugby's 
biggest challenge is to stay relevant, I suppose, is to, is to compete against the things that it no longer used to compete against. It's now competing against everything, not just other sports. And within, not just within New Zealand, it used to be, you know, let's say 20 years ago when there were three and a half million New Zealanders and rugby was completely dominant and you looked at the crowds and the stadiums were full and, you know, you had Jonah and, you know, and all these people who were huge megastars, you know, running around and they were the biggest people in the country. Kids now grow up playing Fortnite and doing all this kind of stuff. And they, they have choice from day one. They don't, it's not just, certain rules that you have to abide by anymore um you know in the same way that anything has been disrupted by the globalization of everything rugby has been affected by that and rugby has to fight against that to stay relevant and keep people interested and hence the rise of rugby sevens um it allows smaller people to play better people to play um you know the rise of women's rugby has been a key for rugby um it's become an option rugby is a disruptor you know, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Net, netball was the thing that, that Gil said. Rugby is a disruptor there. And the women's game is growing, you know, over 10% each year. Um, so they've, they've had to find a way to compete in a new marketplace. And that's the big challenge. Yeah, going to the... I'm just thinking about, you know, obviously rugby is a global game. The challenges that they've got right now the growth that you've seen in certain sections, but at the same time, the pause at a global level for an entire sport, right? Every, every sport everywhere. I mean, you know, um, you know, Dana White's looking to flip and, you know, do fight Island and have shit flying in and out and all the rest of it. How do you think Corona changes global rugby? Cause obviously when we come out from three to, uh, from four to three, three to two, there's going to be these different rules, but obviously I'm, I'm imagining still at a three and potentially even a two, if you, even if you're coming in the country, you're going to have that two week lockdown, yada, yada, yada. Um, how does this change logistically? Like the NRL is a bit different because they're talking about literally going to Australia, they play it there, giddy up, done. Yeah. Here, how, what does what rugby and the All Blacks potential, and I mean, you obviously don't, don't know all the answers, but like what, what do you think this does to, how does Corona change the global game? They've looked at multiple instances, but of course they're completely guided by um, the government and what the government comes up with. So, you know, as long as we're not allowed to fly out and they're not allowed to fly in. Um, international rugby is on hold, really, isn't it? So the focus in the meantime, until you know we get to level one or, or whatever that might be, is focusing on what can happen when we get to level two. And, and, and when it gets to level two, you're then talking about teams being able to train in some capacity again, but then they're going to need a, a preseason because the players now aren't match hardened. They're not used to taking blows, et cetera, to the body. So you can be as fit as you like, but you know you can't um, you can't just jump into a rugby game. You're going to get hurt. So then you've got another probably month of that once level two comes. So we're probably still a couple of months away from any kind of rugby. So then you're looking. Okay, do we have a short Super Rugby season? Um, what do we do with the domestic comp, minor ten cup? Um, is there a, an ability maybe for a North Island versus South Island game in a window where an All Blacks test would have been if you're still not allowed to travel? Um, so I would say that as far as international rugby is concerned, it's, it's a watch this space. It's a wait and see. Um, domestic rugby, I think New Zealand rugby has more control over. Um, mm. You'll find maybe Super Rugby's played just the New Zealand conference and you won't worry about the South Africans and the Australians this year. It'll just be a New Zealand conference in yeah. the meantime. And, um, in a way, that that's you know it's kind of cool and that the most watched games are the Kiwi games because they've got mm -hmm. the most All Blacks in them. Um, so you'll see a bit more of that, and then maybe there'll be a bit more kind of a regional feel to it. Um, and then with 
with the Mitre 10 Cup, you'll be seeing maybe a few All Blacks playing the Mitre 10 Cup, which we haven't seen for years and years yeah. and years, which would be cool, you know. Let's say that um, Manawa 2 has Aaron Smith, Aaron Cruden and Nani Laumape at 9, 10, 12. Like, that's pretty cool. Um, like and that. That, would be, that would be massive for Palmerston North. You know what I mean? Um, that would be great for them if people are allowed to go and watch. You know, or, or, or pockets of hundreds in the stands. It, yeah, exactly. Like, zone how would one, that work? Zone two. Yeah. Yeah, to- totally. Um, and I mean, we saw the NRL when they played in front of zero crowds. That that really sucked a bit of the life out of the game. You know what I mean? You couldn't feel the excitement and the energy. So you do need crowds, and if you don't have crowds, um, how do you replicate the feeling of the crowd? You know, um, it's an interesting. Um, yeah, it's an interesting proposition, but. In most ways, to answer your question, it's short, in a short thing, they wait and see what the government has to say, and they're at the hands of the government. And in the meantime, they can plan multiple scenarios. And so when they've got those prepared, they can press go as soon as the government says, this is what we're at. Yeah. I mean, all businesses are in the same spot right now. They, they've got game plans of what will happen at L3, L2, and, and they're, all, they're, they're planning for those things. So the second it goes in, boom everyone goes into action they know exactly what's going to happen obviously sports going to be there there's obviously a big um financial downside to this whole thing as well because i know in the states they were talking about you know if the nba don't do at least 70 percent of their games broadcast they don't get their tv right that's part of the agreement for the tv mm. rights money which is where the majority of of um, the billings that come in to, to get all the payers played so there's also there's almost this massive issue that there is at the moment with these all these global sports that ha- that haven't actually finished off seasons and they they need to have these obligations to sponsors and engagements and these clauses to click over and these like the what do you think the financial implications of this now to clear off and then future if we don't get moving again what that looks like yeah i, su- I suppose when you look at the global sporting landscape you're starting to ask whether it was actually a false economy um you know you when you that? have billionaire owners of football teams who have got let's say in the premier league or within the nfl or whatever they they own these teams but will never make money off them and to keep them going it's a flex mate it's it's, ego flex it is it's a flex (laughs) and so in, in those kind of competitions where you've got massive broadcast deals which they rely on to keep the day-to-day running going and then you've just got a a billionaire you know throwing a few checks at you along the way and is this actually an economic system that works for sport? And then when you have something like COVID come along, which really just is, you know, a, a way of focusing on the problems that we have. And because the problems suddenly in every way, you know, just grew and they, they just, you know, mm. <laughs> suddenly, you know, if you had a small problem, it was a large problem um, because COVID kind of magnified that. A lot of these sports leagues, I think, are going to be seeing that. Um, one of the lucky things for New Zealand rugby is that it's a centralised system. So um, they own, you know, all of the teams and they have the ability to control and, and make sure that everyone survives. And, you know, they're, they're partnered in with Sky and they can work together to make content and come up with a plan for the future. But when you have sporting leagues where, you know, you've got multiple billionaire owners who've all got different ideas and are all in it for different reasons, um, you've got something out there that acts like a business, but really is just kind of a piece of philanthropy, you know, yeah. expensive piece of philanthropy. And, and, and is it really a business and is it a successful business? And long term, is it going to work? Because 
so on that exact point, I'm just wondering if there's going to be the next wave of when people try to get back to work and if there's, you know, 80% less turnover, there's going to be, you know, redundancies and shutdowns. It's going to be a flipping gong show. Unemployment's going to go up. We know this thing's going to happen and then it's the slow build back. But for billionaires in the spots like this that potentially is a false economy, if I'm a billionaire and if I get pumped through this thing and I, if I'm losing, so I've got a friend of mine who's in, uh, he's, he's in a, business a family office which does very well they've lost over nine figures in the last 60 days right. right say if you've got that type of stuff going on with these with these billionaires there's going to be the tension of financially maybe i, I am too spread out this was just an ego flex i need to actually focus on business or i will no have no wealth or the ego will double down because they're so either passionate or want to then flex out because they will have more eyeballs or attention to it because they could almost win by default to back it and double down. So there's, I'm just wondering, is there, is there a risk to not just rugby, but, but sport in general of an exodus of those Steve Ballmers of the world of the whoever, I mean, he obviously won't cause he's at a different level, but um, those that were doing it for, for fun in a few corporate boxes, you know, do they have more pressing issues at hand potentially for the survival of their businesses? Right. You would think so. And then you're looking at sales and then, you know, who's out there to buy it. So, you know, like if you're at a high billionaire level and you can't afford it anymore, who's going to have the money to buy it off you? Are you going to sell it for a dollar? You know what I mean? Like <laughs> how are you going to get rid of this team? And then what are you going to do to keep the team running once you've still got it? Are you going to go into further debt? I think we've seen, you know, with, with Manchester United, I think the Glazers went into huge amounts of debt to, to purchase Manchester United, and it really affected the way the club's business ran. So, you know, I, if you're going to double down, what effect is that going to have on the sports team? And and what effect is that going to have on the fans? The, the whole reason the sports team's around is because of the, the hundreds of thousands or millions of fans, depending on how big you are or, or where you are. Um, they're the ones who are truly going to be affected by this. The guys, the billionaires who are flexing, you know, they can move on. They can go to their, you know, private island or do whatever yeah. they want to do. The but the fans, the, the fans who have been stuck at home and who live for these teams, you know, go meet their mates at the pub and talk about these teams, buy all the jerseys. They're the ones who are going to lose out because mm. of these, you know, flexes in a false economy. Um, so there needs to be a way figured out for how the, the sporting landscape can continue if that happens once this is over. I was just thinking from a from a sport from a fan perspective. One of the ones that got floated a little bit ago. There's a few chats bubbling around. Is the idea of um, you know uh, crowdsourcing or, or crowdfunding the Warriors, right? If you look at the the, the NFL's model of the Green Bay Packers, um, you know they've essentially got like a hundred year wait list or some shit for season passes because everyone there they're they're, they're essentially owned by the fans. I'm wondering if a big strategy that might these owners of these teams might start looking at is if people start getting into trouble, it's like if one billionaire can't do it, maybe a hundred thousand fans can, you know? And totally. And, and, and Monty was onto way. something there. Yep. I think Monty was onto something there, wasn't he? Like it was an interesting um, ploy. And one of the things about sport is ownership, right? Um, so if you continue to own that, um, that team, you feel connected to that team. And and maybe that is a way forward for the sport is to have that little bit of ownership there for the fans. I wouldn't be surprised if there was an exodus of billionaires and a mass surgence of, um, because there's going to be leagues that fall over because as soon as, 
Leagues are sponsored by sponsors. Sponsors run businesses. If business has no turnover or goes to 50% or less, I'm pretty sure the first thing that usually gets cut in pretty much every organization is marketing. <laughs> so when that happens, the first thing that, that goes, it's not gonna be like, oh man, I really, we really gotta get that corporate box. It's like, no, 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 we need to hire people and have product and have a service to the market, to the world. So I'm actually wondering that the, the waterfall, the butterfly effect of this into sport, it's gonna go into some funky places, which I don't think many people have talked about yet. Yeah, yeah, you've got to continue to have sponsors and sponsors are important. You know, your sponsors have got to remain loyal through this amount and realize that if they're planning to get something out of it afterwards, if you know, as long as they're not making people unemployed for the sake of sponsoring a sports team, I suppose that's that the people's employment and people's welfare within their business is the most important. But um, if, if sponsors can continue to stay involved and stay loyal to these franchises, the franchises will continue and the sport will continue and the sport will start up and it'll get back to a strong level again because people love the competition, they love the entertainment of sport and the, and the sponsors will come back. Um, one thing I, I heard the other day, which I found kind of interesting, it's not really my field, but essentially, um, I can't remember who said it, but it was in a time like this, they said marketing is almost more important because, yep. because you've got to continue to be in people's spaces to stay relevant. And when, when you can't provide the product, at least you can provide the promise of the product returning and, and, and remain in people's heads and, and, and let people know that you still care or whatever your brand might be. Um, and so just to cut your marketing spend completely is kind of shooting yourself in the foot. It would be, it's the difference of building brand over a time where you're telling story and showing care and empathy, not trying to push product and being tone deaf to the market, to the realities of, of commerce, right? And I think yeah. you know, we've obviously both, both seen some pretty good jobs at this and some pretty pretty bad ones, bad ones at it. Just on that point before, at the moment, if everyone's at zero, I mean, people are getting almost so desperate, they'd probably tune in to watch flipping you know, croquet at this point, live pay-per-view, right? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, Esports has been the thing that's really, you know, taken advantage of this. Um, V8 supercars, Formula One, NASCAR all be doing e-races and people are watching and they're getting commentators, you know, and um, and that's that's a thing, you know. Um, the darts tour are doing live darts from people's homes and the hilarious thing is, you know, like former world champion Gary Anderson, he couldn't compete because his Wi-Fi wasn't good enough. <laughs> um, but they've literally got a couple of webcams in the house. They put it on the dartboard they throw it and get commentated from home. So a lot of, you know, that kind of stuff. There are sports and individual sports where you can continue to make the most of the market and really almost get in, get a little bit more than you used to have. Um, esports is a, a massive growing business. And so many of these professional sporting outlets around the world, especially through Europe and the States, actually own their own esports teams. Mm. Um, you know, and it's because they can see how big this is for the future and that they also know that their own athletes are big into it. You know, like you look at the Warriors and the Blues and, and teams like that, they've got a lot of gamers within their um, their outfits and they can use them to you know, cross-promote um, in all sorts of ways. So uh, eSports essentially, I think, will, will get much, much bigger um, in this kind of landscape. Yeah, it was fastest growing sport for the last, I think, two years now globally. Um, esports and the dollars of it and I think I even want to say the one of the biggest events had more viewers than the Super Bowl but no one even knows about it yeah well, that's it um, there's been a few big players I think in that space around New Zealand um, John McRae do you know John McRae no, no, um, he used to be in with David Higgins for the fight of the century okay. so he was co-starter of Duco events um, and back when fight of the century was together, they were together and they did that um, 
he continued in kind of the fight sports landscape and a few other bits and bobs along with his other businesses. But a couple of years ago, he moved into esports and he set up, you know, uh, an esports collective within New Zealand because there wasn't like a national body. Um, he helped set up, you know, that big gaming thing in Sky City and, you know, get sort of the esports going here. And so there are people, who, you know, he's not Dana White. You never heard of him. But he, you know, he's been making big plays in the background and, and getting this stuff, which is the future and very profitable because it's completely connected in the same way as, you know, let's say um, a Transformers movie to Transformers action figures. It's, mm. it's completely connected to the sales of products. So, you know, you, if there's a new game out, it will get sold and people want to compete in it. And those things completely match in together. And there is permanent sponsorship because... There are businesses out there that completely rely on on gamers. There was a, on that exact point around gaming. I was in a phone call yesterday, and someone was bringing up around how the the federation or the esports something was trying to create this NSO that was sanctioned, so then they could actually get the rubber stamp to be able to do gambling hmm. on the back end of it. And yeah. and I was thinking, I was like, what? He said, well. Um, because I've been on all sorts of crazy calls. And this one, it was interesting. I said, so what's the go? I said, well, all the TABs and the pokies and blah, blah, all that shit's at zero. There's nothing to bet on. But if you get regulated, then all of a sudden, then it counts as an official sport or something. I don't know the ins and outs. Mm -hmm. But basically what it was is like, how do you legalize um, esports to potentially then gamble on so that you've got a product to the world so you at least get some type of revenue in? And I, 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 it was news to me. I was like, I get it. I get it. And that's that's really interesting because basketball in New Zealand has been highly affected by COVID-19 because um, the TAB legally has to pay, I think it's like 5% of its takings from each sport to the sports governing body. So, for instance, basketball, lots of people bet on the on the NBA. And so the New Zealand National Basketball um they, the get, bets. Yeah. they win from the NBA bets. So when the NBA stops, suddenly you've got you know millions of dollars no longer available that were being bet on oh, millions, hundreds of thousands, whatever it might be. Lots of money to a small organization is no longer available because something on the other side of the world um, <laughs> isn't being played and gambling is being used to help fund, which I, I feel it should be, um, some of these, these smaller sports. It's the butterfly effect of this thing, mate. It's it's insane. Like every chat, because I've just been doing a shit ton of these. Every single chat I have, I'm just seeing a different tentacle go down a different little rabbit hole of like problem, 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 problem. And then you're like opportunity, 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 and you work your way back yeah. up. So it's just like yeah. It's like what what do you think the what do you think the ninja move right now? Like at the moment, every single business is, they're talking about, you know, um, we had Cameron George on the show. He's he was talking about horizontal collaboration between different other verticals and things. And just kind of like, uh, you know, Tim Alp, CEO of Juicy Group was talking about, you know, now's the time for full, you know, aggressive lateral thinking across all these different things. In the media landscape or sports or sort of in general, do you think there's like a flippin' full ninja move, which if someone was brave enough to do, they could actually pull off? Like, is there a ninja move? Well, it's hard to say, mate. If I, if I knew it, what, knew if it'd be making it. Um, but yeah, you know, like um, most of these sports are tied into fairly solid contracts. You know, they're very much tied into broadcast deals. They're tied into sponsorship deals. You know, you can't just flip something on its head because there are so many mechanisations to the way this thing works. Um, if you're in a young new sport um, like esports, yeah you can make your ninja move right now. Um, some of the other sports are more about treading water until it comes back. And it will come back. 
you know, and people will turn up and sell out All Blacks games, you know, and people will turn up to rugby games again at super rugby level and, and maybe with a bit more passion because they haven't seen it in a long time and they realise that they miss it, um, you know, and, and things like that. But I, I think they're probably aren't as many ninja moves. Ninja moves are made at broadcast deal negotiating time. Um, that's yeah. when ninja moves are made in mainstream sport, you know. Um, and, yeah. and right now, most of the mainstream sports are tied into decent deals. Mm. The the experience when you talked about for for fans to go to games, it has become very clear from, from years of, I don't know if it's a neglect from experience or just getting shitty cold fish and chips or whatever the thing was, the experience of a fan in comparison to a lot of the other places around the world, hasn't probably been at a five-star level. And when people are sitting at home with a flipping, you know, Dazzy Heineken's in their 60-inch, they're like, stuff it, I'm good here. Do you think that this is going to be a moment where every single sport that has um, people in attendance, obviously navigating through the 4-3-2 as it goes from 100 people to 500, yada, 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 will radically change the way they approach customer experience, the, 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 the eyes of the fan, the tech integration the potential upsells just that whole world of customer mm. experience when it comes to sport i feel has been shit really for a lot how do you think that they will react to this i, I think there's, there's already been some moves made um but now it's got to be fine-tuned i remember going to uh chicago bulls game in 2016 and thinking man there wasn't a microsecond that i wasn't entertained that entire game you know, like yeah, something was going hours. on, <laughs> yeah. you, you know, like you, you turn up and every single moment of, of every single time out, there is something going on, whether it's a t-shirt cannon or a video on the big screen or, you know, whatever it might be. Um, in New Zealand, I think we're probably a little bit behind, but there have been some organizations who have been trying to push it a little bit further. Let's say Vodafone and the All Blacks were providing an experience on, on your phone where you could look at multiple angles of that try while you're there. So instead of just having the big screen to look at to watch that try, you could then turn on your phone and go, how can I see that from all the different camera angles? You know what I mean? Can I watch this again and again? Um, you know, while the kick's being lined up and they were providing things like that, which is, you know, a huge step forward in, in a, you know, an entertainment experiences at a rugby game. Um, the Crusaders went to the United States and did a big, you know, look into how they could change their um, their approach. And they came back with some really cool ideas, small ideas even. Like that, it's always been that the home team runs out second at a New Zealand game. Well, the Crusaders put that on its head and said, okay, they're running out first because we want to provide the big, you know, atmosphere. We want our team to be out there. We want our fans looking at them, you know, and little minor details to change when they got into, you know, what you suppose you call the, the red zone, um, the 20 meters, suddenly you've got music and you've got, you know, more entertainment going on. Um, you know, similar to when you go to a, a basketball game and you hear defense, defense, you know, it's things like that were being brought into it to try to lift the crowd a little bit. Um, food experiences, no longer a sloppy hot dog that costs you 10 bucks. You know, you go to AMI Stadium, they've got a bunch of food trucks, you can get, you know, whatever you're into um, there. Um, lots of different flavors, you know, pretty gourmet for, for a rugby experience, you know. Um, things like that that make you turn up and go, oh, man, I ate something cool. I saw something cool. They provided a slightly different experience to, to what I'm used to at a rugby game. Those moves are starting to be made, but they they still need to be refined big time. You know, people need to be getting as much as possible out of it. And I, I think that a lot of that has to do with, providing the right venue you know if for instance in auckland eden park is is difficult 
it's difficult to get to. You know, New Zealanders like to drive their cars. Um, there's a train station right there. You can catch a bus to Eden Park, but New Zealanders like to drive their cars. So, you know, infrastructure um, needs to be made better. You need to be able to get from any part of Auckland on a train or a bus easily to sporting venues, like to, to Eden Park. You know, if you're in the South Island, for instance, you know, AMI Stadium is a temporary stand, obviously, because of the earthquake, and that's very understandable. When they have a roof over the top and going to that stadium, you are not freezing cold in the middle of winter. It sounds far more attractive than, you know, <laughs> you could be sitting in your lounge with a fireplace on and, you know, drinking a cold beer there in absolute comfort. So I think in New Zealand, it's more than just the experience of, of the entertainment you put on. It's the ability to get to and from the games. How comfortable are you at the game? Um, you know, do you want to be taking your um, kid to a game that kicks off at 7.30 and getting them home at 11? So New Zealand rugby moved the kickoff time earlier this year to 7 o'clock. So it's just a little bit easier fans to get their kids home and get them to bed and it's not such a nightmare you're not having a kid throwing a tantrum in the back of the car on the way home so you know we're starting to see new zealand rugby work in that direction um trying to find a better way of delivering an experience to fans that's better tailored to the fans um and yeah. that those kind of things are things that they're thinking about but they need to be fine-tuned and i think Somebody now they've got yeah um they, they need to come up with it um and they need to continue to work on it because otherwise people will continue to sit in their lounge where they go, oh, actually, there's an NRL, NRL game on the other channel as well. And oh, I'll see what that is, you know. Oh, there's basketball on as well. Oh, just flick over to the breakers. Well, you know, just, you know, and, and you've got to provide a really solid reason for people it's to get out of their home. It's a commitment, right? It's like a four, yeah. four five-hour thing. It's like I transport in for an hour, I get there, hour before I do the thing, get back, you know. But also, I mean, in my head, if I, I just keep going back to NFL, obviously, you know, I, I, I mess with that a, a bit. I'm thinking tailgates, crowd ownership. No one has mm. owned tailgate community culture in New Zealand. No one's cracked No, it. no one's cracked no. it. And, and it's because our stadiums aren't necessarily in a place that it works. I said the one stadium which probably would really work is the Eden Stadium, Forsyth Bar. They've got Logan Park right next door, and you could definitely set that up. Um, I remember going to a test match in Durban in South Africa. Um, New Zealand put 50 points on the Springboks, and there's a massive paddock next to Kings Park in Durban, and that's what they do. They turn up at 10 a.m. in the morning, and they set up the barbecue, and that's what they do for five hours before the game started. And I just walked in, and I was like, Wow. Yeah, this is so thing. much cooler than how we do it, you know, like this is, it, it's, you know, in the same way as, you know, if you're in South Africa, if you are going to have a barbecue, you know, they call it a braai and they use wood and setting up the fire is part of the culture. You, you stand around, you set up the fire, you light it, there's a tradition to it. And, it and it provides a romance to the event that comes with it more than just turning the gas on on the barbecue in New Zealand, you know, there's, You've got to create traditions. You've got to create romance for the fans, things that they will look to and remember and go, that was an experience. I was part of that thing. And I didn't just turn up to watch it. I was part of it. And and yeah. that's kind of, yeah. You're, you're like in. Like I, I remember my first, you know, Oakland Raiders game, got the train, got off, six cop cars with guns out, ready to rumble. And I'm just like, this is some shit. And then you go and it's just like... <laughs> and the energy and i i explained to someone i said okay you're the biggest all black fan of all time you go to a all blacks versus um australia but it's slow finals it's the biggest thing times that by 10 
And then that's what an NFL game is. When you roll up to one of those big ones, it's the the magnitudes of scale, the the pre-hype, the the the, the dress ups, the tailgating, the people, the camaraderie, the the noise, the chants, the sound, the fire, like just every bit is just experience overload. Boom, 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 and it sort of gets up and exactly to your point, exactly, and it's like moments. You have moments, and then you feel that, and then that that, that ties your 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 soul into the sport you know like there's those mm. moments happen you know That's and, and with be- new zealanders the key thing is that new zealanders as an as a nation are relatively low-key you know are they going to dress up like oakland raiders supporters with big spikes all over them and you know all of the hardcore stuff that they do uh, how do you get new zealanders to do more than just wear your jersey and do the the milo chart you know what i mean like <laughs> um, that <laughs> You know, um, yeah. that, that's what you've got to, someone's got to crack that. Someone's got to figure out how to get the passion in. The way that, you know, the Wellington Phoenix supporters, the Yellow Fever do, create something that makes them part of it. And But you need to get the New Zealand populace on board. Um, and I think that's the difficult part because I think a lot of teams have tried to crack that. But we're just so low key. We don't want to stand out. You know, we we want to kind of fade into the background and enjoy it. And when it comes to rugby in particular, we're so passionate and knowledgeable that you, when you go to a lot of games, people are so intent on the game that they don't want to sing. They don't want to, you know, shout and dance and do all of those kind of things, you know, because they are so intent on seeing whether or not there were hands in that breakdown a hundred meters away from them you know and and that, that's a difficult like eyes yeah. Oh, yeah. Yep. and that's a challenge for new zealand sporting um organizations to overcome that um i think the warriors have less trouble with that because they have a very uh, the, the teams with a more sort of niche following uh, tend to attract a touch more passion you know whether it's the phoenix or the breakers or the warriors their fans are louder and and prouder i think because of the way that they are a little bit niche and that's something that they hold a little bit more pride in but the general populace is so laid back and so circumspect in comparison that teams have to overcome that in order to create an experience like you get Uh, i went to a um, barcelona football game a couple of years ago and it was intense like it was so cool there was literally a section of the crowd that i feel didn't even watch the game um because you know they were singing and dancing and banging on the drums and doing their thing um and it was hugely entertaining for a person i'm not i'm not really into football but to just go and watch them and see how that happens but where can you tap into that the blues have done some cool stuff in the little last little while they've introduced like a three-piece um brass band that goes around the stadium playing tunes and it's incredible how much it adds to the atmosphere um they just, you know, they lift the crowd that's in the space around them. And that's super cool. Um, I, I really enjoyed feeling that because it was, it's a tiny little thing, but it adds up, you know. All those it's, small pieces. It's got a bit of soul to it, you know, mm. and, and, and it really builds the atmosphere there. And so things like that, which some teams are doing some good small things, they just have to tie it all together somehow. Yeah, it's tough, eh? So sports especially with rugby money all the rest of it, it's really directly tied into media and it you've you've seen the media game from obviously sky now you've done the media works thing you've you've been around the traps for a bit what do you think's broken and the biggest thing that's broken right now in media from from where you see it 
what part of the media? Are you talking about the mainstream sort of media? Are you talking about the host broadcasters or... No, just more mainstream because I, I had this example. I said, you know, like right now everyone's at home. They all have their cell phone. They are on either, you know, Vodafone spark two degrees and data's going yeah. through the flipping roof. Telcos are winning. Great. Yeah. The content that they're consuming or that business is, stuff's asking for money from the community bowers going uh, leaving new zealand no one's really making making much money so i'm like so i'm using the same device i'm using the data and then that business is winning but then i'm consuming the content with that data and then that industry is losing yeah so that, you know but then within from your lens from within media obviously you've seen Juno, you've seen on do sides of the corporate like where do you think it's broken like what's the what's the hook that we're missing I think that we've held on to tradition for too long in a lot of ways. Like I, I feel really bad for the people at, at Bauer um, who've lost their jobs and who do wonderful jobs, great journalists and, and, and come up with great pieces. But um, I was always a little bit surprised that magazines continued when we've all just been on our phones. You know, I, you walk into the supermarket and the magazine rack was always full. And you're always like, I, I never see anyone pick one of these up. How... How is this working? There was a, a tie to traditional media that I, I'd never quite really understood seeing as we'd all obviously moved on to another point. Um, how, why weren't people on the Women's Day app? You know what I mean? Like, why were pe people picking up a, a Women's Day? Maybe if you're going on a plane, cool. You know, something to page through when you, you can't, you know, use the internet or whatever. But um, I think that the, the big change in the media is literally going to be figuring out the things that actually have become a little bit superfluous. And I know that's cold, and I know that there's a lot yeah. of people whose livelihoods are tied to it, but some things are a little bit superfluous that we're holding on to. And, and well, it's not the, it's the, the formats, right? Like, because that you yeah. still consume that content, it, but you're consuming it digitally, really, right? And I think I keep going back to no one's commercialized digital well yet in media. And, and that's a big change. I, I remember, I think it was last year or the year before, um, when I was at MediaWorks and, and the News Hub um, website had just started to make money. You know what I mean? Like, it had just started to make money. And it had been years and years and years, and all of the companies are like that. You know, we're seeing paywalls come in with the Herald to the premium content and, and all those kind of things. People are trying to figure it out. But for so long, this stuff's all been free. So how many people are wanting to, to necessarily pay for it? Well, um, that, that's the hard part. But I, you, no one has come up with the answer to that question. Um, and, that and, it's been a, and it's been a question yeah. <laughs> for a decade. You know what I mean? Like, how, how has it been a question for a decade and no one has the answer? It, you know, usually when there's a need, someone finds an answer. And... Um, I think it's because we've been so tied to traditional ways of approaching things. Um, and so many jobs are tied to that and so many people's livelihoods mm. are tied to that. And so, and, and it's understandable because if, if suddenly it all changes and all these people lose everything that, that they base their lives around, their mortgages, their ability to put food on the table, all those kind of things, um, you don't want to let go. Of something that's not working and then these companies end up leveraging being held by big um you know kind of um corporates who you know get into a bit of debt and try to buy them up and flip them over and ship them on to somebody else for a profit and then they don't truly understand the business and you know and then it doesn't really work and those kind of things you hear constantly are they going to be mergers are they going to be this are they going to be that how is this working at the moment you know there's this big debate about um 
whether TVNZ should just be like the BBC and have no advertising because they've created this um, this thing where you know they're the public broadcaster and mm. they're a money making machine and you want competition, you don't want a monopoly, but as long as one company is getting both taxpayer money and commercial money, what are the other companies supposed to do to compete? Um, you know, and so they're talking about the merger with RNZ and whether or not, you know, TPNZ remains in that same um, space as RNZ where there's no adverts and they're simply public service. Um, and, and that's going to be a big game changer. And I know MediaWorks and staff and NZME, they're all big on that because TVNZ is getting a leg up over them and how do you compete in a market pace that doesn't give you a chance? Well, they've got the, the I think it's just when you've got the back of a safety, which you know is never going to drop it, you, you're you good, right? Like I think just mentally it's a different, I'll put it this way, I was with a friend a while ago and he was talking about this media landscape and I said, how do you describe it? Like in your world? And he goes, well, it's basically like there's a whole bunch of vultures circling and no one has figured out who the prey is yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was like, yeah. that's the greatest way to think about it because you're exactly right. And did, I mean, did you see the spin-off article that had the documentation of the screen grab of all the different media owners do it getting interviewed by the government and their quotes? Uh, uh, no, I, I didn't see that article, but I, I've read a lot about that. Oh, it was gold. Like I was watch, reading these these quotes and it was so classic from each person's position of exactly what mm. you know the game is, but with where yeah. their stance would be. And I was like, man, yeah. zoom out. They had one, they had out of all of it, right? You had everyone representing their own business and then you had one like independent old mate from the outside. And it just, it felt like there wasn't... A, it wasn't the depth of actual thinking for a solution. It was people having to play their position based on what they repped. It was like when posts come out on LinkedIn, CEOs are never going to go and comment in there with like, you know, oh, my computer's doing such a great job, good work team, because the business is representing that opinion. And, yeah. and I just wish there was like a platform to have that chat with those level of people without the badges on, without the armor just saying Facebook is bad. Like that, you, that, that's not an argument. Like you can't, like, you know, like what are you doing? So anyway, I just, I'm just yeah. interested to, yeah, I just wanted it to, no one's cracked uh, it, I think is the answer is. No one's cracked no, it. No, one, no one's cracked it. There will, there will continue to get new kind of media companies coming into the space, owning niche areas, you know, and I think you'll continue to see larger media companies buy those niche media companies as they become successful. But when it comes to the wider news media, um, the only big change in the last 10 years has been clickbait. Yeah, and that's directly drove to the revenue piece. Yeah, um, exactly, because that's how they, that's the only way they can get money online is through mm. clickbait. And so they push it real hard. But it seems that's the only real solution that's actually been found and worked in the last little while. Well, it devalues brand and it's not, it, it devalues brand with clickbait and it actually over time decreases your leverage in the market because you no longer have the stamp of authority because then you're perceived differently, right? So you, oh, long game, long game weaker, short game survival, which is the well, model, which I understand. And for news media, that's the hard bit because credibility is everything. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, there is a reputation like used car salesmen or lawyers yeah. that the mainstream media is not to be trusted and that they have agendas and yeah. that they push this and push that and the other thing. And, and look, in some cases that's true. 
Um, but in 99% of the cases, I can tell you that pretty much all the journalists that I know are out there trying to do good, trying to hold the man to account, trying to give the people what they want and what they need. And when you have clickbait out there um, and you've got headlines which skew stories and do all of those kind of things just to get people on, it doesn't help with your credibility. And it turns people further against the media and I think in the long term can affect probably how many people will come on board for the right reasons. You know, you'll still get people clicking on the clickbait, but you know, people who are really there for the news. Mm. Yeah. So from here, uh, what does the future hold for you for this next little while? Isolation Nation, rolling that out? Yeah, yeah. And the the Carl's Corner? So I mean, that's, that's taking up a lot of time, two shows a week. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of players around the country, so finding the angles and finding the people to talk to. And, you know, and, and the great thing about this is how the players have come on board and really taken ownership of it. And it's, it's given them a new way outside of just social media streams to, to show who they are and, and get to a general audience. But um, after that, we've got to play it by ear, I suppose. You know, level three is pretty much remains lockdown. So I think that we'll remain doing the show through then. The question is, how do we then leverage on what we've created? The the inside look at the players, the understanding of who these people are, and how do we leverage that? And how do we continue that when rugby comes back? Um, so that that's the next strategy. We need to come up with some ideas to, to continue to push that, to, to stay um, in that space um, and for all of the organizations because Isolation Nation has been such a, a big success. Um, you know, the first show had 160,000 views on allblacks.com within a day. Um, you know, we, we were, people wanted that content and, and really enjoying that content all around the world, um, the comments coming in. So we've got to find a way of taking that, what has been quite a success, keeping it relevant, keeping it fresh and interesting, not going over the same storylines and continuing to push out that kind of content when rugby is back so people continue to understand their players and mm. and look at that. And then, of course, when rugby's back, we've got to cover rugby. <laughs> um, and, and, and every other sport, it's Sky Sport, that, you know, that people want to see the NRL back on, on May 28 by the sound of it. So uh, they've really pushed hard to get that back. And, um, you know, we'll, those are the kind of things that we need to do. We need to keep the old product, got to keep the rugby looking great and get the people the sport that they really care about and then get the people and insight into the players as well. And that how we do that is, is kind of our next big step. Just like that. Save the world, yep. Ross. Flipping, <laughs> flipping sports. Where we people, everything's getting bored at this stage. We're Honestly, we're about to watch live streaming tiddlywinks and chess competitions between who knows what at this level. Um, yeah. Brother, awesome chatting with you, man. Hi to wifey and good luck with, with Grom. Watch out yep. for all the, watch out for the Sky Remote. Yeah, I've got something for you, actually. Oh, piss off. Don't say it's a whiskey. That's, mate, <laughs> yes. I, that's been, mate, that's been sitting with me. I haven't got it to you for like two years now. I picked that up in Dublin a couple of years ago when you had all your whiskey stolen. Oh, um, dude. So that yep. there is uh, coming your way. Oh, mate. Oh, mate. So. Well, I'm, I'm happy that you've managed to hold on to it for two years without giving it back to me, mate. So it's clearly a, so mate. actually, I'll, I'll, I'm going to re-gift this back to you because we've got logistical things. I'd like you to open it tonight with Wifey, have a little dram, send me a photo, and I'm, I'll be more than happy, and I'll have one on this side for you as well. Sweet, bro. Love your work, brother. I'll see you soon, Roscoe. See you soon, mate. Cheers. Later, bro. Chat. Bye. What a good bastard, too, isn't he? Knows his game around the world of sport.
Sport is interesting. There are many challenges that are within it. There are many challenges for experience, tech, game, play, safety, travels, logistics, the whole flipping game, broadcast rights, sponsorships, ownerships. Oh, the butterfly effect of this has paused a lot, but I, you know, sport's such a good sprinkle on top, which is such a connection piece for the nation. So I'm hoping that we keep focused and driven to what we know that world can be once we get finally get some sport back in the mix. Um, and I just hope the Flippin' Oakland Raiders can launch in Vegas this year. I need this. See you soon, Tim.